This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, and Ryan. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Ronan Levy. Ronan is a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and the co-founder of Field Trip Health. During our conversation, Ronan talks about his journey into the psychedelic space, how currently available ketamine therapy can help those with anxiety and depression, the possibility of the legalization of MDMA therapy in 2023, how Field Trip Health aims to provide a medically supervised professional set and setting for those who choose to have a psychedelic experience, the efficacy of empathogens and psychedelics on treating psychological disease, and how the legalization of medicinal psychedelic use might affect and improve our society. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ronan Levy. Ronan Levy, great to meet you. Welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Likewise. Uh, I was thinking today about how to start this, and I wanted to start by making the simple observation that I know you are technically trained as a lawyer. And I'm wondering first, for the people listening to this, how in the hell a lawyer trained, went to law school, was a practicing lawyer, I think on Bay Street in Toronto for a period of time, ends up becoming a co-founder of a psychedelics company. How does that happen? (laughs) That happens with a little bit of self-dignity and self-worth, I suppose. (laughs) Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I mean... As a kid growing up, I always wanted to go to law school. I always found that like when I got to actual, when I got to undergrad, I don't know if you found this experience yourself, but you know, people wanted to be doctors or lawyers. There was very few, except the engineers, the engineers were an entirely (laughs) different crowd, but anybody going into like an arts or business-based program, they had two paths, uh, law or, or becoming a doctor. And I fell into the law camp, um, got into law school got, you know, quickly discovered that the vibe of the people, and I have some wonderful friends from law school, but the vibe of the people and who I was or who I thought I wanted to be didn't quite jive, but I was there and I knew it was a good education, or at least everyone told me it's such a great education for whatever you want to do. So I stuck with it, Uh, got a job articling, spent a couple of years as a securities, corporate and securities lawyer generally despised my life from, I would say nine to five, but when you're working that kind of life, it's more like seven till seven, 24 hours a day. You're kind of always on call uh, and realized that is not how I want to spend my days on this planet. So spent uh, a couple of years trying to get out. You'd be surprised, even though everyone says like, oh, becoming a lawyer is such great training for everything. 
it's really hard for people to see you as anything but a lawyer. Uh, so it took me a while to eventually make my way out of the practice of law. Started my first business. Um, this was 2011, so just over 10 years ago. Um, always having entrepreneurial friends and inclinations, uh, but started my first business 10 years ago with some partners. And then from there, kind of evolved into cannabis and then psychedelics, not because I'm particularly experienced or knowledgeable in either subject matter, much more now than I was a couple of years ago, but uh, um, it was just a function of opportunity. And the fact that since about, God, it's been close to 20 years, probably since about 2005, 2006, I've done a lot of work with meditation and personal growth and that kind of sphere of things. And I know really how much that's done for my life uh, and, and how much it's helped me. And so when I saw psychedelics being a platform or a springboard to open up a whole new audience and a whole new generation to some of the things that I think have been really profoundly impactful on my life, I thought it was an opportunity I, I had to pursue. And so that's how you go from law to, to psychedelics. And remarkably, there was not one big psychedelic trip between the start of that story uh, <laughs> Until fairly recent, so I can't even I can't even chalk it up to some great insights uh, or transformative psychedelic moment. But such is life. Yeah, I heard you say in a previous interview that there was a story you recounted when you were actually a practicing lawyer, where you were giving a PowerPoint presentation or a deck to a a colleague, and his response to you was, "Aren't you potentially a little too creative to be a lawyer in the first place?" Um, yeah. What What is that story? What What did he notice in your writing, in your, you know, uh, brainstorming session? What do you think was a tell that perhaps this is not the industry for you? I, so it wasn't quite a presentation. What it was was uh, I was an articling student, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's like a year of apprenticeship after you graduate law school before you can become a lawyer in the province of Ontario. Not every jurisdiction has that, but Ontario has that. It's basically an excuse for the law firms to underpay you for a year, and I've heard many lawyers actually acknowledge that's what it is. So I was an articling student. There's about 20 or so other articling students in my year because there's a big law firm. Um, and we were having a contest with the first year associates, so the lawyers a year above us, to see who could raise more money for the United Way. Because mm -hmm. every year at that time, there's a big push to raise money for the United Way. Um, and so we came up with a, what we thought were all these crafty ideas in terms of how to raise money. And one of them was to do a articling students' shoe shine. So we walked around the seven floors in the office building, getting down on our knees and shining, you know, the lawyer's shoes, which was not too dissimilar from the actual experience of articling, but that's an entirely <laughs> separate conversation. Um, and so we were thinking about how to promote it. And, um, and just create awareness for it instead of going around and knocking people's doors. Uh, and I came up with this idea just to send a very simple email, like not, no, no fuss, no, nothing, you know, well-designed, just an email that was centered in the middle of the email mail. You know, this was back in the, the outlook days when only you could really only ever use outlook. And all it said was articling uh, first year associates are stall. Don't let your shoes be articling students shoe shine. And that's it. And I sent it out to the entire law firm. <laughs> And I guess lawyers are so devoid of creative elements in their lives that everyone's mind was blown that a you know an articling kid would send a I guess an email to the entire firm, but it was something that was you know kind of witty, right? Like not just straight to the point, but like had a little bit of cheekiness in it. And I got literally 
50 emails back talking about how great of an email that was. But one of them was from a partner whose response back was just, are you too creative to be a lawyer? Question mark. And I was like, <laughs> yep. Yeah, I probably am. But I had known that for a while. That wasn't entirely a surprise, but it was a great piece of validation for me. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was thinking about this uh, in the in the kind of the lead up in the past day or two of, th- of this conversation about how I would bet you probably te- you probably would test high very very high in trait openness in the big five personality qualities, uh, which is just a kind of a side interest of mine. It's an acronym of Ocean, and and the O in Ocean is uh, trait openness, which is I guess what is often used to determine psychometric data and analyzing personalities by professional psychologists. And I know I heard you say in a prior interview that when you began to venture into the uh, business world, and you've already alluded to your work in the in the cannabis space, I think what I heard you say is that it's amazing what opportunities exist if you are basically open to them and willing to put uh, your reputation on the line to pursue an interest that is just standing right in front of you. And yep. I would love to hear what that transition was like. And maybe it was something else, or maybe it was specific to cannabis, where you saw this multi-billion dollar industry about to become legal, and you were in a position to see that this was a massive opportunity. Um, what's the story there? How did you kind of transition into that space in the first space, which I know is a segue eventually into the psychedelic space? Yeah, so it, it was it was the I think confluence of a number of factors, but I had been a practicing lawyer. Um, you know, I did the corporate and security stuff, just like we talked about, but always felt so inclined to run against the grain. You know, yeah. I think inherently I have a little bit of an oppositional inclination, um, and. Uh, as I got it, after I left private practice, I actually went in house and I worked at a, a, a biotech company and then actually an online dating company. And that mm-hmm. online dating company did a lot of cheeky things, right? And a lot of it, most lawyers would freak out over. Uh, and truthfully, as the lawyer in the company, I freaked out about them as well. But the CEO was actually someone who was who finished law school, um, never got qualified to practice law, but knew the game really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really opened my eyes to how a the rules of the game, what the letters say, and what you can get away with are very different. Um, and that the best lawyers um, are the ones who feel comfortable crossing the letter and going into the gray zone between acceptability and legality. And, and, yeah. and there's a gap there. Um, uh, and just, you know, wading into like conversations uh, around touchy subjects. And I realized that you can wade into some of these subject matters um, that maybe not, aren't necessarily appealing or, you know, seem to run or, or gauche or, or seen as, you know, societally and socially unacceptable. But, you know, my inspiration was, um, there's been a few inspirations in my life, but I remember as a kid, um, reading the globe and mail which is kind of like the new york times in canada very reputable yep. business newspaper and there's this one section uh, that usually just had a quote of the day and and one of the quotes was from i don't remember exactly what the quote was but it's from mark twain and they refer to mark twain as the stern foe of all sham <laughs> and i had no idea what it meant as a seven-year-old but something about that spoke to my soul 
And I, I cut it out and I kept it in my wallet that had no money in it for many, many years because something about to- that told me that I liked the idea of what it is to be a stern foe of all sham, even though I really didn't even know what it meant at the time. Uh, and then subsequently, I, I was reading a, a Tom Robbins book, one of my favorite authors. And, um, you know, he talks about how in ancient Rome, there's this concept of eat the taboo, that like any taboo should constantly, constantly be questioned and analyzed and challenged. Um, because very often you'll find that it's based on preconceptions or misconceptions or facts that are no longer relevant. Uh, and again, that just spoke to me um, mm. quite significantly. So all of these little experiences, plus working at this online dating company, kind of prime me for being willing to explore things that other people find distasteful or, you know, concerning or anything along those lines. And so my first business, even before getting into cannabis and psychedelics, was actually opening up a cash for gold store, which are businesses that don't exactly have the best of reputations. But we saw an opportunity, myself and and my co-founders in that business, to bring a modern lens to it, to bring good business practices to it, to not be some shady dealer who's constantly trying to rip people off, but be really open and transparent. So if you come to any of our stores, uh, which are still open, there's no haggling. There's no surprise. We post all of our prices online, we test all the jewelry in front of you. So we can say to you, here's exactly what you have. Here's exactly our price. If you'd like it, great. If you don't, that's okay too. You know, Happy for you to come back another time if you're interested. And it's like, most people would be like, oh, I don't want to be a cash for gold buyer. Truthfully, that was my reaction too initially. <laughs> but that, as I leaned into it, I'm like, oh, there's opportunity here. Um, and so we started that business. It still operates. It was never my passion or my dream to operate a cash for gold business. So after a, a couple of years, we brought in people to run it kind of day to day. And it freed me up to start pursuing other passions and interests. Um, and uh, that's kind of how... So I, I started doing that. The, the gold business wasn't paying enough to keep me alive at that point. So I started doing some freelance legal work again to pay the bills. Ended up meeting the people who would become my co-founders in the cannabis industry as well as the psychedelics industry. Helped them diligence a whole bunch of business ideas as a lawyer as well as a business person. Um, they started one. They shut it down because it wasn't working. We had another meeting. They had a list of like 10 ideas on the wall. We went through them. Um, kind of nixed all of them. And then I was, as I was leaving, um, and I remember this quite vividly, I don't know why, because I can't remember anything these days with 10 kids. Uh, I put I was putting on my jacket and Joseph, um, the CEO of Field Trip, uh, was like, well, there's this one other idea. And I'm like, what's that? And I'm like, well, the rules around medical cannabis in Canada are changing and we can do like an online marketplace for cannabis. And I was like, and why aren't you doing that? And like, well, cannabis, you know, it seemed, well, it was called marijuana at the time and hadn't really gone through the branding. They're like, marijuana, it's like, it seems so shady. You know, we don't really want to be associated with that kind of industry. And I'm like, guys, like I've gone from like corporate law to biotech law to media law to, you know, online dating to now cash or gold, you know, cannabis is probably going to be the prettiest thing, you know, the nicest thing I'm ever going to work on here, given the trajectory of my career. Uh, And I'm like, you never get this opportunity where it's literally a massive business where you don't have to worry about product market fit. You know, there's product market fit out there. Uh, Just gets dropped on your lap and you get to be a first mover in it because no one really knows about these changing regulations. And so that's how we kind of hopped into that. But it, it was that lens of, 
I, my reputation is, is defined by my internal values. And as long as I maintain adherence to my internal values, you know, I don't care what other people think. And if other people care, you know, that I'm in this industry, even though it's ethical and moral and right, I don't need them to be friends of mine, you know, if they're really going to make an issue of it. And, and so that's how, how we got started in the cannabis industry. It helps also that I have, you know, a wife who is terribly supportive, you know, of all this kind of work and all of these crazy abstract ideas as well. But certainly, you know, it was just a, an easy decision for me to be like, cool, this is amazing. What a great opportunity to do something really fun and something that's going to be significant. Yeah. I want to I want to shift and begin to focus on the work you're currently doing with with Field Trip and to talk about both what is um, you know the the beginning story of the company, what's available now, and then later what what might be available in the future. And um, maybe if we could start with you just telling us. My understanding is that there were five our five co-founders. What what was the impetus what was the opportunity the initiative from those five people yourself included to begin to move in this direction and i think my understanding is that from the beginning and to this day the primary medical availability that's that's being offered by the company is via ketamine and so you can take that and speak to it however however much detail you'd like but what what is that genesis story of that company yeah, so um, I'll just pick up where we left off from the last story, actually, because it, yeah. it provides a nice segue. So after kind of cajoling Joseph and Hanan um, to meet with Ryan, you'll notice in, in field trip, there's Joseph and Ronan and Hanan and Ryan. Um, because Ryan was the one, he was a physician who was aware of the changing medical cannabis rules. You know, we sat down, we had a conversation we kind of all decided to throw in and join forces to create this online marketplace for cannabis, which eventually pivoted into opening cannabis specialized medical clinics across Canada. And, and I think at one point we had 30 locations. We helped 150,000 Canadians access the medical cannabis system, the legal medical cannabis system in Canada. And, and one of the things that was consistent among all of us was that even though uh, you know, Joseph and Hanan got past their initial kind of reputational dislike of cannabis. Um, all of us were blown away with just how impactful cannabis medicine was for our patients. You know, we always had that inclination of like, oh, this is just people looking for a legal way to get high. And then we saw what our clinics were doing. And we saw the stories of people writing back saying like, oh my God, this has changed, literally changed my life. I tried everything, you know, I was on the verge of suicide and then cannabis has eased my pain or, or, you know, helps me with my, you know, it helps me eat when I don't have hungry because I'm going through uh, chemotherapy. Like, you know, you just heard these really, really transformative stories consistently. And we realized, oh, this is real medicine. This is real, so sincere, significant medicine. And um, it really changed our eyes. So, uh, and our, our minds around the potential here and the potential of other you know, stigmatized medicine. So we sold that business to a company called Aurora, Aurora Cannabis, and we helped it grow from a small company into one of the largest producers globally of cannabis. Left in the middle of 2018, and it just so happened, and, and we didn't know what we were going to do at that time. You know, we we had done well through the sale of our business. The cannabis industry had gone through a great heyday. You know, we had 
had a lot of opportunity um, to kind of sit around and figure out what was next for us. And it just so happened that one of the first meetings that Joseph had after we left and, and kind of just went out on our own to figure things out was with someone who was exploring research in, in psilocybin and psychedelics. And so I remember this day as well, I was leaving the office, I was walking down the hall and Joseph was walking the other way. And I was like, oh, who are you meeting with? And he's like, oh, I don't know, some someone who wants to do something with psilocybin. And I'm like, wait, psilocybin is a thing? And he's like, I, I guess so. And I'm like, what? This, this sounds interesting, right? I had the same kind of electric feeling I had when they first raised the cannabis idea. Um, so we brought that person back, had a conversation with her, and she kind of ran us through what was happening in the psychedelics industry at the time, which was um, Michael Pollan had just published How to Change Your Mind, um, which if you haven't read, you certainly should. Uh, MAPS had just been granted breakthrough therapy designation for their MDMA-assisted therapy trial by the FDA. Uh, and Peter Thiel had recently invested in a company called Compass Pathways doing something with psilocybin. Again, something that I had been aware of, but didn't pay much attention to. Um, and in that meeting, um, Judy, the woman we were meeting with, said something that struck me where she said, a single psilocybin-assisted therapy session is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon. And having gone through a lot of the coaching and personal growth stuff, I'm like, oh, wow, like if there's any truth to that whatsoever, this could be a huge spring forward for truly what could be a globally shifting influence and, and, and direction. Um, and, and so I had that same kind of electric feeling, but I didn't know what that, what we were going to do. I mean, unlike cannabis where the regulations had changed, mm. psychedelics were all still illegal. Um, so we kind of just started exploring, you know, doing something with psychedelics. Uh, this was Joseph Hanan and I, and then we told Ryan who would become close with, um, to the cannabis industry is like, Oh, I'm super into like, let's find something to do there. So Ryan joined us. Um, and then Mujib, who had been working at a big corporation in Canada, that company had gone through a transition and he had left and he had nothing to do as well. He had just kind of left his job and, and had, you know, a bit of a, a severance package to live off. So we're like, MJ, come, come hang out, join us. Like, we don't know what we're doing next, but here are some of the ideas that we're kind of playing with. Uh, and uniformly, we just kept coming back to psychedelics. Psychedelics just seemed so interesting. And so we kind of aligned and said, all right, let's do something in psychedelics. Uh, and Bucci was like, all right, let's go on a field trip, you know, to try this out. So that's where the name field trip came from. Um, and I remember just being like, field trip, that is the name right there. That's the name. And, and so that's stuck. Uh, and we were struck by the realization that we had no idea what to do, right? There's so many things we maybe could do, you know, maybe we could set up a facility in Jamaica uh, to grow psilocybin mushrooms because it's legal down there. Um, and, you know, and, and so we started playing with that and then got into an agreement with the University of West Indies. And then we realized that ketamine uh, was being used like a psychedelic and showing really transformative mental health experiences. And we saw that MDMA and psilocybin were probably a few years down the road, but they were coming. And having talked and spoken to Rick Doblin at MAPS and Michael Pollan um, and the folks at Beckley, everybody kept saying, we need new clinical infrastructure. Set and setting when it comes to psychedelic therapies is incredibly important. So even if psilocybin or MDMA gets approved next year, if we don't have new clinical infrastructure, it's not going to live up to its promise. And so like, oh, wow, we just built a whole clinical network in a stigmatized medicine area, we've got some skill sets that we can bring to bear here. And 
in the meantime, while we're waiting for MDMA and psilocybin-assisted therapy, we can use ketamine. Ketamine seems to be used in the same context, in the same vein, and showing incredible results. And so that's how uh, we got into being primarily a ketamine-assisted therapy clinic, because we saw, A, the demand and the need for these clinics coming uh, and we realized we could create impact and revenue and a brand right now by working with ketamine as the other psychedelics kind of go through the, the hoops they have to get through to, to broader access. Yeah. I, I first learned about ketamine therapy a couple of years ago when I had dinner with a, a friend of mine and she has battled very severe anxiety for mo- most of her life, most of her adult life. The day I saw her, I think she had got just gotten out of her fifth ketamine therapy session over the course of a couple of weeks. And it was by far the best I had ever seen her. Um, for people that have no understanding or experience with ketamine, and I should say, even for myself, I was blown away by the fact that I didn't know that there, I live in Austin, Texas, there were legal ketamine clinics down the street from me that I had never heard of before. Um, what what would you say or how would you introduce what ketamine to start with what what ketamine can offer to people who are you know experiencing some sort of mental psychological distress that this piques their interest who are the people that really might benefit from this type of therapy and and what what can they reasonably expect to experience during it sure so i, I before i hop too far into that i think it's important to distinguish. There are ketamine clinics and then there's ketamine assisted therapy clinics yep. and, and they're different. Um, ketamine clinics typically use an IV infusion uh, and they give you a kind of slow, consistent drip and they're treating ketamine like an antidepressant. You know, you feel better uh, and I'll talk about what the experience is like uh, in a little bit for a while, but you're not really addressing any of the fundamental changes that typically need to happen to support real sustained improvements in, in mental and emotional and behavioral health. Mm-hmm. What we do at Field Trip is ketamine-assisted therapy, which is using the model of psychedelic-assisted therapy that we see with MDMA and psilocybin, and just using ketamine as the, as the medicine of choice as opposed to psilocybin and MDMA. And what that means is we're pairing the whole experience very closely with Therapy, usually forms of cognitive behavioral therapy like motivational interviewing or or behavioral activation. So you come in, you have the ketamine experience. And one of the big differences between what we do and an IV infusion, an IV infusion gives you a slow, kind of consistent trip. So it feels like, you know, um, almost like if anyone's consumed cannabis, you know, if you if you consume cannabis and like there's that immediately that kind of like deflation and relaxation that comes with that. It's kind of like what you'll get. It's it's kind of sedating, but doesn't make you tired. It just like helps you like let go uh, in in some ways um, when you're on a ketamine trip, which is a very pleasant experience. Don't get me wrong; it can be very positive, and there are certainly some neurogenic um, positive effects from it. What we do is we use uh, uh, intramuscular injection, which makes it so you get that same kind of relaxed feeling, but you go way deeper into the experience. And then so you have much more of a psychedelic experience. And during that psychedelic experience, what happens, and we see this across the, the psychedelics, people often are able to revisit past traumas, past experience, past moments in their lives that may be one of the underlying driving causes of their mental and emotional and behavioral health challenges, right? 
And with that awareness, you're still getting all the benefit of the ketamine as a, as, as a, as a chemical, but you're also getting this hyper-accelerated form of therapy. You're getting to the breakthroughs that people try and get through co- out of cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy. Instead of taking months or years to get there, you get there in an afternoon or two afternoons. And, and so you've got these layers of different effects taking place um, where you have these emotional breakthroughs and there are therapists actually help you adopt new, healthier lifestyles, habits, outlooks, uh, because following a psychedelic experience is a period of neuroplasticity where you're actually more able to actually change. You know, we Mm -hmm. talk about how children are very neuroplastic and they can pick up languages, no problem and new skills, no problem. Whereas us old folks, it takes, it's a little bit harder for that (laughs) to happen. Um, But following a psychedelic experience, even for us old folks, it gets a little bit easier. So you've got all of these different levels of things happening following a ketamine-assisted therapy experience that you don't get with just ketamine infusion. Mm -hmm. Going back to your question, uh, which I apologize, it took us on a very uh, long tangent. Who's this for? Um, You know, the truth is, it's the the strongest evidence is for people with uh, depression, major depression, treatment-resistant depression. anxiety as well. Some benefits for PTSD, the evidence isn't as strong with PTSD, but certainly it's quite there with um, uh, depression and anxiety. Um, And other indications are being explored as well. That's who, that's kind of the medical answer. The truth is, is I'm a big believer is that everybody should do therapy and everybody would benefit from, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy. It helps get you in touch with your emotions. It helps you process your emotions. It helps you understand, you know, some of your biases and perspectives. And to the extent that I see psychedelic assisted therapy, kind of like to draw an analogy to physical fitness, you can go to the gym. Everybody can go to the gym and work out. And we all know that going to the gym and working out can make us healthier and stronger and happier and live longer and all this kind of stuff. And when you go to the gym by yourself, you're making some progress, but if you go there and you spend time with a trainer, you're going to make a lot more progress. You're going to use that time much more effectively and do more. And that's the way I think about psychedelic assisted therapy, which is everybody should be doing some mental and emotional work uh, because I think it helps people on any number of levels and doing it with psychedelics just amplifies it, makes it a look, helps you go a little bit further, helps you go a little bit deeper. Uh, and so to that extent, I'm of the view that psychedelic assisted therapy should be for anyone, as long as they don't have a specific contraindication, um, contraindications, meaning people with severe schizophrenia or severe bipolar people who's, uh, whose grasp on what we call objective reality tends to be a bit tenuous, probably not well-suited for those people. People with uncontrolled high blood pressure, um, not well-suited, at least vis-a-vis ketamine, because ketamine can elevate your blood pressure. Outside of that, you know, by and large, psychedelics, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA are incredibly safe when used in, in a proper therapeutic environment, and, and I think can help a lot of people benefit from you know, the small T traumas that we all experience. We've all had breakups. We've all lost family members or friends. We've all gotten, you know, bad reviews at jobs. All of us have had whatever these experiences and they build up. And most of us are not equipped with the emotional tools or resiliency to not process, to be able to process them at a young age. And, and through this work, you can process them and develop new tool sets such that when life throws you another curveball, which it inevitably will, you're way more equipped to actually be able to deal with it, process it and move on instead of holding on to it. Cause like, 
for example, I'm a person, I hold on to anger. Like I, I'm super easy going all the time, but like little by little, little things add up and then I explode. Right. Mm. Um, it's probably not a healthy way to live, but you know, that's how I was trained. That's how I grew up. So I'm trying to get better. Um, at uh, processing my anger on the fly instead of letting it build up. And, and it's like these little skill sets, um, which can be learned through therapy, but I think just on a much more expedited, uh, efficient basis with psychedelic assisted therapies, I, I think are, are really what can benefit people. Yeah. My understanding is that the etymology of the word psychedelic means mind manifesting, that it, it is essentially alluding to the fact that, you know, under these substances, you have basically, you know, enhanced mental capabilities and insight into yourself. And, um, in the little that I have those experiences, that has absolutely been, um, been my experience as well. You know, I have heard you say also in other interviews that to someone who has never done this, this sounds magical almost that this is, you know, you, I've heard you use the, the phrase woo woo a lot in, in prior conversations as well. You know, I've heard you also articulate that we don't really understand what in the hell is going on inside the brain when you're under these substances. Um, you know, I loved your comment, which you had made, um, and I think a prior podcast interview that, you know, your, your hope is that in time, and I think this is part of the idea related to the business model of what you're trying to get into here is that just like you go to the dentist a couple of times a year to make sure that you're you're maintaining your dental hygiene and health you know that it may very well be a good idea for people to you know have ceremonies for themselves in the future once this becomes more widespread and more widely available um you know speak to that a little bit if you can you know maybe we can start with just the the sheer mystery of what it's like to be in a psychedelic state. And again, I mean, I, I would argue that most of the Americans that I know, especially older Americans have never had an experience like this. And it seems odd and almost um, beyond belief that something like this truly can quickly identify root causes of emotional issues, anger problems, traumas, you know, lower T traumas, like you said, that you've had in the past. Um, in your estimation with your experience right now, what's your guess as to what is going on with these substances? How are they able to so quickly access, you know, arguably the most important psychological issues and work through them in a way that no other substances really can? <laughs> That's uh you know, the truth is when it comes to neuroscience, we don't know how the mind works at all. Like the, the best we got right now is we can put people in functional magnetic resonance imaging machines and see when you give this drug that these parts of the brain light up, like somehow, you know, an energy or blood flowing to that part of the brain translates into subjective experience. But there's a huge causal leaf we're making there. We, we don't actually know. That being said, there are some fairly persuasive theories uh, about um, what's happening in the brain and, and why we seem to have both these really transformative experiences uh, as well as driving straight to um, the, the kind of core issues of what may be driving a person's depression, anxiety, or mental health challenges. What seems to happen, and this is what we know from the fMRI uh, studies, is two things seem to happen in the brain. 
First is that there's a part of the brain that parts of the brain that collectively are called the default mode network, um, which currently are believed to that those parts of your brain are kind of like the operating system. They're the base kind of functionality of keeping you alive. It's the part of your brain that's keeping your heart beating and your lungs, you know, breathing and your liver working and all that kind of stuff, even though you're not consciously thinking about it. During a psychedelic experience, the default, oh, sorry, one other important thing is that it's believed, at least in the psychology terms, that your ego resides in the mm -hmm. default mode work, network. Your, your sense of self, uh, which tends to become more rigid as you age, lives in the default mode network. And so what we see during a psychedelic experience is that default mode network, the operating system that kind of controls allocation of resources and all that kind of stuff, just slows down a little bit, gives up a little bit of control. There's no risk, you know, physically speaking. In fact, psychedelics are some of the safest drugs and have very, um, almost no LD50, which means you can't really overdose on them at all. But in the mind, it seems to tone down that, that, that piece where the ego resides, that, pe that piece of your consciousness that keeps your identity so crisp, so hardly defined. And when your ego gets to quiet down, um, which is also the part of the mind that suppresses memories, other parts of your mind come to life. And, and we see different parts of the brain light up. Um, and I, you know, in, in one personal psychedelic experience, I kind of got the feeling that um, when my ego was quiet, a, a very feminine part of my brain started to come out. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, started to like operate and show me what it would like it be like if I had a little bit more balance between I say masculine it's not male and then this can we can get it's a little bit touchy with these words but sort of the masculine part of my brain the hyperlogical part of my brain not male masculine um, if it was balanced a little bit more with the more intuitive and the more emotional you know it'd be a lot better and I actually found during that psychedelic experience physically my body was like crying and heaving mm. and you know feeling sad even though i wasn't like my body was almost going through the emotion the, the motions of these emotions um and so that kind of validated to me the theory that when when your your default no mode network quiets down it becomes less active and your ego quiets down you can tap into all of these things in your subconscious that may have been repressed that may have been pushed down and they come to light and and because you're no longer the child that got hit by your parents or because you're no longer the soldier uh, who's under fire in Afghanistan you can see it from a different lens you know the, those parts of your brain and your mind that try and protect you from those traumatic experiences uh, can let go for a little while and you can look at that and say like oh I'm no longer in theater I no longer have to be afraid of those things uh, and now I can let go of that in a, in, a, in a much more healthy way sure I could talk about it being like yeah I know I'm no longer scared when I hear loud noises but it, there's just something on a sort of more deeply, intimately personal, emotional level that seems to come out during a psychedelic experience. Um, and that's what we hear. And that's certainly been my experience. So that's how you do That's how it happens, right? Different parts of your brain become active or less active. And that seems to allow the subconscious to come forward and be analyzed in a, in a current light, as opposed to in the moments of these traumas or these experiences. Yeah. What, what I notice myself when I have these experiences is that it is, I feel it's odd to say, but I feel more like myself 
Um, I, it, it is like being reminded of who I was when I was younger. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, I, I totally resonate with what you just said about the, the more you know, feminine side of your, yourself um, being, you know, I'm much more apt to, to weep, you know, to, and they're, they're often tears of joy of beauty in relationships or, you know, friendships that I've cultivated or work that I'm doing and, and just a greater appreciation for, for life. And I think especially for guys who are often encouraged to cut that part of themselves off entirely as they age and have to make a living and you know potentially support a family i think guys especially are are at risk for completely overcompensating and no longer having access to that inner capital s self uh you know within them and i not that you want your entire life run by tears of joy but if you in my experience, if you don't have any access to that, it's really difficult to be certain or confident in what you're doing in your life and why you're doing it. Because it's a belief of mine that we're fundamentally emotional animals that we, you know, I, like you probably have, I think, overcompensated in my logical Spock side of my brain. But a lot of, I think that is just a rationalization for feeling states you know, that, that can get harder to access as you get older and are, it's just often not particularly cultivated. Um, you know, I listened yesterday to your conversation that you did with Scott Galloway on his podcast. And the most interesting thing that I took away from that conversation was when he brought up the fact that, you know, one, he was interested in going to one of your clinics and, and engaging, but two, that, he was scared because he was worried that the revelations he might have under these influ- under these substances during these experiences could radically transform his life you know that that he may be repressing core elements of his life or be in denial about the nature of his relationship with his wife or his kids that could really change him um and I'd love for you to speak to that. I know you did in that conversation a little bit related to that fear, which you know taboos have always fascinated me because uh, they often so often are seem to be rooted in fear of where people's minds don't want to go. That's something that they don't want to consider. You know, for, for let's say someone who is of Scott's description, you know, a, a man in his fifties is a very quote unquote successful businessman, but is interested in developing and growing a different side of his personality as he gets older, how would you address that specific concern about, man, if I do this, it could reveal the truth about my life in a way that I'm not really ready for, that it scares me of how much it could upend what I'm up to on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's... uh... You know, I, I, I refer back to the, the teacher I work with, not with psychedelics, but just in kind of my coaching and then personal growth work. And he's like, and so, <laughs> you know, it is, is honestly, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, unsatisfying answer. Um, but it's truthfully the honest answer, which is, so you wake up and you realize that you hate so many aspects of your life right now and that you've been you know, avoiding that feeling through work or alcohol or buying fancy cars. Um, and now you know that you don't really like those things. It's like, you don't have to do anything about that. 
but isn't just the awareness powerful to know being like, okay, that's, that's not who I want to necessarily be anymore. Um, you don't have to throw everything out with a, a baby out with a bath water when you have that awareness, but once you have that awareness, you can work with it. That being said, you know, the truth is, is that most people, uh, most people's experience with psychedelics are very transformative and eye opening, but most people don't, you know, grow their hair long, move to the jungle and become, you know, shaman. Some people do. And, and, those people who do find it the best experience of their lives. Most people go home and realize it's opened them up to be slightly better husbands or wives, slightly better parents, um, slightly more understanding business partners uh, or friends. And, and so for most people, the changes are actually kind of incremental. The experience is transformative and awe-inspiring. But once the once you kind of come back to yourself, you just you just moved a little bit. It's, it's not life changing for most people. So, you know, that's a long way of saying if it if it opens your eyes to like totally throwing everything out, then you know that's kind of wonderful and, and be thankful for that. But the truth is, is ninety nine point nine percent of the time it won't do that. It'll just help you see things slightly differently uh, and and help you move forward to think of place of happiness. Yeah. That being said, there is generally a good rule of advice that don't spend more than $5,000, you know, for 30 days after a psychedelic experience. That's generally a, a good piece of advice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I often find that after experiences like that, it's a revelation to me as well of just how guarded I often am emotionally. And that, that, that is not something I aspire to as I, as I personally get older. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the future for the company, because I know you guys have very big ambitions for the next even five years. And uh, I personally think, and I think you're in agreement about this, that we are on the cusp of a real revolution related to these substances in places like Canada and the United States. Um, Maybe start, if you can, by talking about what that revolution might be looking like in five years of time and how you want to position your company to address the opportunity and the needs of the citizenry um, to be able to benefit from these substances in the first place. Sure. Yeah. So right now in in North America, ketamine assisted therapy is legal legal and perfectly valid and and most doctors can prescribe it. we anticipate that MDMA-assisted therapy should complete it, the second arm of its phase three clinical trial this year and get approved for marketing early next year. I think MAPS uh, saying that May of next year is when they expect FDA approval. So as soon as next year, we could have MDMA-assisted therapy available for the treatment of PTSD. And, and the results of those studies are, are absolutely mind-blowing in terms of how effective MDMA-assisted therapy is. Psilocybin-assisted therapy uh, from an FDA approval perspective is a few years down the road, uh, probably 2025 or so. Hmm. Um, That's a purely medical path. What we see happening on a a political grassroots activism path is we've seen the state of Oregon uh, legalize access to psilocybin services, to psilocybin therapies, uh, which should go live next year. Um, You know, that that's not specifically approved for, you know, treatment of depression, but it will no longer, you will now be permitted to access psychedelic therapies through licensed providers. Very similar to what we saw with 
cannabis regulation still in the U.S., where state by state they're creating legal cannabis laws, even though the federal government hasn't hasn't quite caught up. So we're going to see that continue to roll out on a state by state basis. I think Washington is moving forward with it. There's different forms of legislation in Texas, and California, and Maine, and, and across the board. So probably in next year or this year's mid this year the midterm elections happening in the US yeah. uh, you'll probably see a few more states vote to reform access to psilocybin therapies what we want to do with field trip is is really you know i think define the standard of what good psychedelic assisted therapy and care looks like and and that means more than just a quality experience right that means more than just great objective outcomes, which we have already. And I'll I'll touch on that for people who are interested uh, in a second. But what I think it really, I think the opportunity, if we just treat psychedelic assisted therapies, like a new form of mental health treatment for depression and anxiety, we're going to create incredible results for depression and anxiety, but we're going to do a disservice for, uh, I think, the broader population. Because not only do psychedelics have, I think, profound ability to enhance the quality of life for people who may not have depression and anxiety, but have all those small T traumas or, you know, aren't as in tune with their emotional sides as they'd like to be or anything along those lines. I think it's also going to start to re-examine how we think about medicine and healthcare overall. You know, we've, for the last hundred years, we've been in a very allopathic science and data focused medical system that has broken the human body into all of its constituent parts. And so you go to a family doctor to triage, you go to a dermatologist for your skin, you know, you go to an ophthalmologist for your eye, you go to uh, uh, a rheumatologist for your arthritis and your joints and your immune system, but they don't really in overlap they don't interplay and and almost none of them are really focused on on your mind with the exception of psychiatrists who's really only equipped right now to try and dull you know the senses of depression and anxiety not really expand the mind or integrate it into the body um and so what my hope is for field trip is to really drive a conversation that advances a much more integrative approach to medicine. One that sees the human as a whole, instead of a constituent of all of its parts, uh, that looks at the mind as being an essential part of all healing experiences. You know, we talk about, if you follow Dave Asprey and Bulletproof Coffee, he Mm -hmm. talks a lot about inflammation being one of the biggest things of driving aging and cancer. And there's a lot of reason to believe that 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 may be the case, but we know that inflammation is tied to your gut health and your gut health is tied to your mental health, right? And so, you know, if we can create an environment where people just start to see humanity differently and their health and their well-being differently uh, and set the standard and open up medicine to a softer, maybe even slightly spiritual side of things, I think that would do uh, wonders. You know, I, I get why we're at where we are because, you know, more than a hundred years ago, it was all spiritual and there was a lot of BS being hucked around and a lot of people died and were hurt by it. Uh, I think I'm hoping we've evolved to a stage in, in this world where we know enough about medicine and can distinguish the BS from the, the legit, or at least recognize that spirituality uh, and, and transcendence actually have a significant impact on our physical health as well and, and let them coexist because right now they're still very much separated and, and there's a lot of people who when you use the word spirituality immediately plug their ears if they could do so uh, and be like I want nothing to do with it but you talk to the people who have been touched by spirituality and 
they think it's the greatest gift they've ever experienced and seem to have better health outcomes associated with that as well. So um, I would love for Field Trip to be the company that bridges that gap in a deeply meaningful way. Yeah. This will be the fourth episode I will have done with psychedelics as its primary theme. And the first one I did, which was the second episode of the podcast in general, was with the Texas legislator who is from Brownsville, Texas, if I remember, who successfully introduced Bill 1802 last year. And it will, this year, I believe, set up the first psychedelic, medically supervised psychedelic trial in the history of, of Texas. And that fact in and of itself seems impossible given the traditional politics of Texas in recent history. The brilliant strategy he had, which I think is the only way I can imagine one person being able to use to make the, the legislation actually pass, is he brought veterans in to testify and have, you know, Texas is a very pro military state, a very pro vet state. And these are Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and just people generally in the military who came in and testified in front of the Texas legislator, legislature and spoke to how oftentimes these substances save their life in their estimation. And I think during that conversation, he noted the you know thousands of veterans who commit suicide every single year. And it just seems obviously criminal to me to not have an option available to people like that or other people who are experiencing PTSD um, to have an outlet to try to heal themselves. You know, another episode I did was with Bruce Poulter, who is a PTSD MAPS therapist. And he also talked during that conversation about his wife, who Rick Doblin actually, I think in the 80s, gave, gave her, she was suicidal and I think was basically committed to killing herself. And he asked her for trust, basically, to go through with him as the guide, an MDMA, se- MDMA guided therapy session, completely changed her life. Um, I have heard you speak to this in prior interviews, and you have alluded it to this to that to the, to the data in this interview as well. But I'd love to give you an opportunity to articulate the results as we understand them now. You know, I have found that when I bring up these conversations with people who traditionally would not be open to psychedelics as an option for people in any capacity, it's when you present the data that, you know, the scientific data with scientists being the high priests of our society, that is what will move them oftentimes. Um, I'd love to just give you an opportunity to go through what the data is looking like related to PTSD, depression, anxiety, anything that you think is relevant. Sure. Um, so I'll start with what we're seeing at field trip. So at field trip, the majority of the people who come in are usually suffering from some degree of depression, uh, from treatment resistant, major depression, all the way down to, you know, dysthymia or adjustment disorders, but they're all kind of on the spectrum of depression. And and what we're seeing is that a person who completes two to three modules, um, of our treatments, which involves each module is two ketamine sessions spaced out over a few days and one integration session. So that's a non-drug, non-medicine, pure cognitive behavioral therapy session. Try and take advantage of all the insights that came out of those ketamine experiences. People who complete two to three of those modules over a four to six week period, say, we see their depression and anxiety scores go from severe down to mild, um, consistently on average. Um, 
And those benefits sustained for 120 days or more on average. So as far as I'm aware, there's no legal approved depression or anxiety treatment that comes anywhere close to those kind of results. Now, many of those people do continue to use their antidepressants following their treatments. And that's one of the nice things about ketamine is that it doesn't interfere with the current treatments you're on. Um, but by and large, people are getting three to four months of sustained improvements in their mental and emotional health and well-being, uh, which is remarkable, like truly remarkable. Going back to the distinction between IV ketamine clinics and what we do in an IV clinic, people benefit for about two to three weeks, and, and then they kind of go back to norm. We're going three to four months before people go back to the norm, in some cases, even longer. So this is really, really transformative. When it comes to suicidal ideation, using that example as well, ketamine is well known for its power to almost immediately deflate suicidal ideation. You know, it's gone within minutes and doesn't return. Um, so we're seeing really, really amazing results with ketamine. To the point that Dr. Tom Insel, who used to be the director of the National Institute of Mental Health in the U.S., declared that ketamine is the most important breakthrough in depression treatment in the last 50 years. Certainly seems to be true, with the exception of what I'm going to say next about what we're seeing with MDMA-assisted therapy and, and PTSD, uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy. Rick Doblin and MAPS, they're conducting the clinical trials for MDMA-assisted therapy. Those trials were granted breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA, which means that they show strong uh, promise uh, and are meeting a significant unmet need. That was a couple of years ago. Right now, MAPS is in the second arm of their uh, phase three clinical trial. In their phase two and the first arm of their phase three, they found they weren't exactly identical, but roughly that 70% of participants in their trials after two or three MDMA-assisted therapy sessions, I can't remember, 70% um, of those people no longer qualified as having PTSD, period. So we're talking about a near effective cure for PTSD. Now, we can't call it an effective cure because maybe you go out six months, a year, two years, and PTSD symptoms start to reemerge. Uh, but at the end point, which I think was three or six months out, 70% uh, of people no longer had PTSD, right? And it actually went up over time. I think it started at 67% and went up to 70%. So people actually get better following the treatment. It's actually additive. It doesn't decline in benefit, it seems. Um, compare that to the current standard of care, uh, which is I don't think there's any drug specifically approved for PTSD. Uh, a lot of physicians will use antidepressants, uh, and the hope is to achieve a 30% improvement in symptoms versus a 70% cure rates. Yeah. And you can appreciate why people are so excited uh, about the potential of psychedelic. And the other important thing is that there were no severe adverse events. So we're talking about major improvements in these people's lives, um, both uh, economically, as well as from a physical and mental health perspective, uh, and no adverse events. With psilocybin, we're seeing similarly kind of transformative results. Uh, you know, some studies suggest that a single psilocybin assisted therapy session, this is one study out of NYU, um, provides up to five years of antidepressant effect. One session, five years of benefit. You know, there's been some more trials that have suggested that may be a little bit heavy, you know, probably longer than average, but, you know, there's always, you can always examine the structure of those trials and all that kind of stuff to sort of debate whether it's that long. But again, with psilocybin, we're seeing uh, results that make them significant, make it significantly better than current treatment for depression and anxiety. So all very exciting stuff. And this is just the first generation of psychedelics. These are all the classic psychedelics. 
companies like Field Trip as well as others are looking for ways to develop the next generation of psychedelics. Can we make them more tailored, more precise, uh, more affordable, all that kind of stuff? And, and so I think you're going to see it get better and better with time, not worse. So it really is a quite an exciting period uh, that we're entering right now from a mental and emotional health perspective. Yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by the question of what will the next generation look back on in our time in 2022 and ask, what in the hell were you guys doing? Um, like we do now with Jim Crow laws or with racism or with, you know, fill in the blank with, you know, drunk driving even at, at one time in the, in the U S and yeah. probably the Western world in general. And I, I get the sense that this will be one of those subjects that future generations will be amazed that we hadn't yet in 2022 already had well-established availability for people to pursue this. You know, the, when I did my MDMA uh, episode with Bruce, I began to get you know outreach from people I hadn't spoken to in more than a decade who were desperate to find help and to get connected with people so that they could improve you know whatever serious trauma that they were trying to to work through and and I I know you must be aware of just the demand that's out there in, in people trying to heal themselves. Um, I want to talk about what where the pushback is coming from and what you think is valid and invalid criticism for companies like yours. You know, I, last week I had this episode actually just came out today. I had Paul Fletcher on, and Paul Fletcher is a one of the world's experts on psychosis. And at the end of the conversation, we talked about psychedelics and psychosis, and it's a eighty minute conversation that goes into. Um, yeah, relatively nuanced conversation about that topic. And I articulated to him that I am very confident that when I was in college, I had um, a, psycho a transitory psychotic experience through excessive marijuana exposure that led to some serious delusions in me that lasted uh, for quite a while and were destabilizing and terrifying for me. And I, I learned this phrase last year, ontological shock where you can, uh, you know, things can be revealed to you. I think, you know, mine were delusional. So I don't think they were rooted in anything that actually is true about the world. But this, I think maybe is what Scott Galloway was alluding to related to very quickly realizing I'm in the wrong life. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not living the way that I, I want to live. And you already spoke about people who have bipolar dis disorder or, you know, severe schizophrenia. And I think from for myself, I, I am trying to navigate that too of you know what kind of exposure to these healing substances do I really want to submit myself to? Because I I learned I have schizophrenia in my family. I think it's probably latent in me. Um, you know, low level doses of um, psilocybin seem to be consistently wonderful tools. I did an MDMA therapy session last summer that was great. Uh, so I'd love for you to just navigate that those waters for people that are just worried about you know how this could affect them psychologically and and maybe to make it more pointed who in your estimation should be giving second thought to pursuing this and even for people like myself who have had uh, some some troubling experiences with drugs how do you speak to people like that as well yeah um you know my my advice always is you know, do what you're ready for. Um, yeah. Don't feel obliged or obligated to pursue something that feels 
intuitively antithetical to something that you're going through or, or who you are. You know, we, we generally accept now that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se. There are challenging experiences and easy experiences and challenging experiences can become bad experiences without the right support. Um, but certainly from a firsthand perspective in our clinics and beyond, you know, we've heard from the patients when they're properly supported that the challenging ones are actually the most transformative and achieve the biggest breakthroughs. Um, but if you're highly resistant to this and don't want to do it and, and are doing it against your, your will or your intuition, odds are you're at very high, much higher risk of having a bad experience, not guaranteed, but um, it's going to be more challenging. Uh, so, so my first piece of advice is, trust your instinct on this, you know, deep down, if you don't feel comfortable with it, don't do it until you're ready. Um, the second piece of advice I would give is even if you feel that you're ready, um, start with lower doses. You know, mm -hmm. we had an expression in our cannabis clinics, start low and go slow. Um, so you can get some degree of comfort and understanding. And if it feels like you're going too far with some level of experience, then that's a great data point, right? You don't have to jump in a whole hog and go to Peru and, and drink ayahuasca four times over a week. You can start by say microdosing and I'm not specifically advocating for microdosing, but for anybody who wants to understand it, but has concerns, here's a way to start develop, developing an understanding of how you respond to it. Um, and, and you go from there. And, and then the other piece of advice I would give is, you know, don't do this alone. You know, <laughs> Don't even do it with uh, some self-professed shaman unless you really trust them. You know, there's a lot of well-intentioned and good people who are hosting psychedelic sessions, group sessions, uh, but are wholly inequipped to be really guiding those. And so um, unless you feel uh, a level of fortitude and comfort with it, I would be very selective in who you work with uh, and make sure you resonate with them and that they've got the skill set and are equipped to help you navigate it. Um, because again, you know, I, I think it was I always attribute it to Rick, uh, but I think maybe he attributes it to Stanislav Grav, who said, the most important thing we can do right now is not fuck it up. Um, and I think that's really good advice. And the best way to do that is to trust your instincts and, and making sure you're doing anything with qualified people. So anything, any risk of something going wrong is, is mitigated to the greatest extent possible. Yeah. I think Rick Doblin will end up being a historical figure. And I remember it just last year when I was I was learning a little bit more about him, learning about the story from his perspective of what was the impetus for him to start MAPS in the first place. I'm not sure if you've ever heard this story, but he was, I think, in his 20s. And he had a dream where one of his ancestors, he's Jewish by ethnicity, and one of his ancestors who was killed in the concentration camps came to him in a dream and said, you were put here to shepherd psychedelics into society and that that was a major part of his transition into this work that he's been dedicating himself to for you know 30 or 40 years um yeah. and I, you know i i know we're beginning to get closer to the end of the conversation and i'd love to talk about what the future might look like if companies like yours are successful if if rick is correct that you know if we just don't fuck this up this is actually going to work um I, it's interesting we're having this conversation, hopefully on the tail end of the pandemic. And it seems like, you know, the lockdowns have brought out the worst 
in so much of human nature of in you know and some of this is availability heuristics i think taking place where you can think of poor behavior and so you think it's happening very very commonly but um the the increase in polarization um just the the additional um you know distance that i feel like people have from one another right now i feel like this kind of work could be incredible in making a more cohesive healthy society over the long term and i'd be i'd be curious just to get your thoughts on you know 10 years from now 15 years from now if these are safe if they're professional if they're widely available and they're accepted how do you think this could change the way we think about our lives and and potentially generally live um, what we consider to be a, a healthy lifestyle? It's a, an incredibly challenging question, but I'll, I'll start with a, a brief anecdote, which is at our old house, uh, our neighbor right beside us, um, an old Greek couple, um, you know, and when, he, when you encountered the man and you asked him how he was doing, his answer was always uniform the same. He was always like, no complaint. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's it's really an insightful thing that I've noticed that like as people age, they start to appreciate things more. Like we've got the the vigor of youth and like the anxiety of youth. And as people get older, they just start to appreciate all the wonder and, and beauty that they have that exists in this world. And maybe it's in part because they know it's running out, their time here is slowing. But it seems like a lot of people have that epiphany as they get older just to appreciate the beauty and wonder of, of this whole experience. And you know, when I start to do the math of if we could that enable that to people a lot sooner so they mm-hmm. could just be grateful for everything and, and spend a lot of time and wonder um, how much more peaceful and loving this world would be. You know, we had, there was a, a journalist who went through our, our therapy in New York and she wrote about her experience. But when I spoke to her after, one of the things she said was, following her ketamine experience, she was just like looking at her fingers and like just found them absolutely awe-inspiring when you think about everything that goes into moving your fingers and even take a moment now and think about it just how many things have to go right to make that work and it happens for all of us um and i really got the sense that it's tapping into that sense of wonder you know that sense of awe that i think in an overly scientific you know world we lose a connection with um very very quickly you know if you open up that's millions of people. I think just that is going to change the world fundamentally. But then I start to do the, the math, um, you know, just extrapolating from what we saw in the late sixties and early seventies. And by the estimates I've read, you know, the counterculture was maybe a million people over mm-hmm. a couple of years. Uh, and by people, I mean, kids probably like aged 18 to 25 or 17 to 25 um, getting high on LSD. Mm. And the cultural and policy implications, notwithstanding, you know, the scheduling of drugs, but a lot of the good policy implications that came out of that million kids getting high in the 60s are still being felt to this day. You know, Woodstock still has a strong cultural presence in our society. A lot of the policy initiatives around women's rights and the environmental movements and human rights that were foundational to a lot of that counterculture movement 
are becoming more and more relevant, not less and less relevant as we move away from that experience. So that was a million kids getting high on LSD. Now start to extrapolate it a little bit if we have 10 million people or 100 million people around the world, not just getting high on LSD, but constructing, constructively using psychedelics to heal their traumas, expand their creativity, develop increased empathy, you know, have greater regard for the planet. We can't even fathom. Like I literally have no idea what the world would look like. And it doesn't mean that everybody has major 180 degree shifts in their lives. You know, again, mm-hmm. referencing back to Irwin, he gives this example of a 1% change in a person's life. If this is kind of like your path, a 1% change going this way over time becomes a very significant deviation. And so it doesn't mean you're going to Peru and growing your hair long as using that example, but if you're just slightly there more slightly more present for your kids, how does that change their lives? You know, it's just it, it becomes incalculable and that becomes just like compounded. It becomes compounded with every generation. So two or three generations down the line, you know, I really, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this subject because I'm fascinated by it and I can't even come close to wrapping my head around the implications of it. Other to, than to say, and this is going back to your question about like, what do I want field trip to stand for? It's like, as, as you start to work with these experiences more, you start to realize that the future is yours to write, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, you know, you're not really subject to just bouncing off the path forward. We get to create the future that we want. It is entirely within our control. And I want field trips to be known for helping set the narrative of how we create that future. That's really what makes me passionate about it. But like I said, I, I, I can't even fathom what the world will look like in a few generations if we just stay on the trajectory that we're on with psychedelics right now. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you the last question, but before I do, I, I just want to convey that I, I, I wish you guys the best. And I, I think, I think it is very likely we will not fuck this up. <laughs> you know, I, I think it is very likely that we are on the cusp of something that I think will make for a much healthier society and, and just a much people who are feeling a lot better about being alive. Um, I think for for people that have had years of serious anxiety or depression, um, God knows I've been through phases of my life that where where that has been the case. You know, the difference between being in that kind of mood and that kind of state of mind and being in a you know more blissful, peaceful existence, it's difficult to you know articulate just how vast that's this the difference is between the two and. How much more beautiful and wonderful life life can be? You know, the last question I want, I want to ask you is related to uh, people that you know, had reached out to me in in my last MDMA therapy uh, conversation after that was published. For people that still need help, right? It sounds like help is on the way uh, in a more widespread way sometime soon. But for people who currently are really suffering. Um, whether with anxiety, depression, PTSD, and they need help now, uh, or they want to pursue potential routes of, of help, where can they go currently to try to find that? And, and specific to your, your company, uh, what's available to people right now that, that might help them? Yeah. So right now at Field Trip, we have 12 locations uh, across North America and one in Europe. Um, uh, so we're, we're expanding as quickly as we can because we anticipate there's going to be significant need. Mm-hmm. I think in, in most, even though the results from IV infusion centers are not quite 
as as transformative as we're seeing in our field trip health centers, they are still extraordinarily transformative for the people who are benefiting from them. So if you need help now, um, certainly I would look for IV infusion centers uh, if current treatment options aren't, aren't working for you. That's definitely a place to go. Um, if you want to know more about field trip and, and the places that we can be found, our website is fieldtriphealth.com uh, and at fieldtriphealth across all socials. Um, so I'd certainly look there. There are a lot of resources. Maps provides a lot of resources. Uh, there are a lot of organizations like uh, Fireside that provide psychedelic support for people who are having experiences on their own. We have our trip app, um, which was really uh, designed from a harm reduction perspective, because as we saw, Places like uh, Denver and Oakland working to decriminalize access to psilocybin and psychedelics. We realized that there are a lot of pe- a lot of people who would take that as tacit legalization uh, and maybe go willy nilly and try it out. And really mm-hmm. want to make sure that we have no judgment if you're trying psychedelics on your own, notwithstanding the current state of the laws in the world. Um, but if you're doing it, do it properly. You know, take the care to make sure you have a good experience, um, because that's going to further what we're trying to achieve um, through our work at Field Trip, as opposed to having a bad experience and potentially being the one to fuck it up, as we said before. Um, so, uh, you know, those are all places that people can look for resources. So, again, our, our website is fieldtriphealth.com. If you're interested in our app Trip, uh, the domain is tripapp.co, T R I P A P P dot co. Um, and more and more, there's tons of resources. You know, um, uh, I was just speaking with Paul Austin from Third Wave. Um, They've got a ton of resources. Double Blind uh, is a publication that's coming out with all sorts of information about psychedelics. So it doesn't take, it's not hard to find good information on psychedelics these days. And so I suggest you start looking and talking to people and, I've I've often likened likened psychedelic use to to Trump voters on some levels, which was there's a a silent majority of people. And what I found in my experience is that there's a lot more people who have or are using psychedelics uh, thoughtfully and effectively. They're just not out of the psychedelic closet, so to speak. Um, And so I think if you start having conversations and speaking to therapists, you'd probably find uh, people who will take you through a, a guided experience. Certainly, we're talking about on an underground perspective in this context, but uh, they're out there and, and I think they're probably more accessible than, than one might think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ronan, I really appreciate the time and um, all the information that you conveyed today. And I, I think, you know, fundamentally why I feel strongly about what you do is because I think it's going to help people. Um, and I, I just want to convey that as we close that I wish you all the the best in the time. I know this is a heavy lift with what you're trying to accomplish, but um, I, I hope it goes as well as possible. And, and I have a lot of gratitude for the work you're you're doing and the, the help that I think you're going to provide to people. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for the opportunity for letting me blather on at length <laughs> and ad, nause- ad nauseum about this stuff. Um, I hope I wasn't too verbose, but I tend to get uh, a little bit into the details a little too much sometimes, but thank you for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure and and thank you for helping create awareness. I think the most important thing is to educate and inform. And so every opportunity we can do so to help people be able to have thoughtful conversations around this. It's one that's worth taking. Definitely. Thank you, man. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. 
If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.